0: No, that's that. Yeah, for sure, I would absolutely agree with that. I think, and it gets a lot easier to, to stay within those echo chambers and say that this is, you know, my. And it's not even actually, you know, look at even just people voting politically, and like we could tie that into the environmentalism or, or into COVID or something. Like it, it's less about the policies, and it's more about where you fit in socioeconomic status. So a plumber, a welder, they're going to vote a certain way. They're going to think a certain way about covid they're going to think a certain way about other things whereas the the lawyer the medical doctor are going to probably be in the other side of things and i try my best in in my show and it's probably the same with yours that like i try to listen to my guests and i try to not necessarily take one side or the other like i try just to say i'm i'm learning i'm i'm trying to figure this out is this the right thing is that the right thing
1: Michael, welcome to uh, Millennial Manhood. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, I've got Michael Barts with me. For folks who don't know who you are, what's what's the ten thousand foot view? What's the what's the story? What are you doing? Yeah,
0: here? Yeah, so I'm I'm Michael, and I live in Canada up in the Great White North. And I'm mm. an actor. I'm a podcast producer and host. And I live with my partner in an off grid tiny house that I built myself. Mm. Tiny house. Are you uh, are you uh,
1: driving a tiny eighteen uh, wheeler down the road as well? Is that
0: the-
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I don't know what's going on up there. I was just seeing it tangentially on social media. Right. So I that was funny. No um, not part of that.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, what you mentioned actor, podcast producer living in a tiny house, let's, let's take it a step back. So uh, let's start with the first one. How do you end up um, in the incredibly lucrative and very easy career of acting?
0: Yeah. Uh, actually, that's what I went to school for. I got a, a diploma in acting from Rosebud School of the Arts. So it's what I studied in, in art school. Okay. Well, what, like anything in particular? Oh yeah. It was, I was an acting major. So working in, it was a theater, primarily theater-based um, school, but then also branching out into some commercial work and some film work as well. So I, mm. I did that and then I actually worked in post secondary for for a number of years and kind of I was still performing but I wasn't doing it full time and I've recently got gotten back into that so it's kind mm-hmm. of a newer reemerging venture
1: Interesting what you know it's it's so interesting because acting on so many different levels is one of those things where especially I mean I'm assuming you were doing it from a really young age right
0: mm-hmm.
1: Probably like 8 six, seven. Yeah. On a, all through whatever. high school and doing productions. Yeah. Yeah. So during the time of your life, when the average human is the most self-conscious about what other people think about them, you're regularly putting yourself out there to, for better or for worse, to be judged for what you're doing. Um, talk about that. Cause I, I think that's an interesting you know, psychological concept on on how humans develop. Like what was that like? What were some of the challenges? What did you
0: learn? Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah. I definitely agree with you that for me, being on stage, being in front of people is I, I get energized by it and I enjoy it. And for most people, that's one of their greatest fears is to be up in front of someone having to do public speaking. So I absolutely definitely get that. I think it was it was just, yeah, I think it was I grew up kind of being a class clown and and getting a few laughs and joking around. So that really gravitated towards me of like, Oh, I can get a laugh. I can get people to engage. And so I don't, know. just growing up, it was, it was for me not really much of a process. It just came really naturally. Yeah. That's, that's interesting because I do feel like there is a, I don't know if
1: it's a person, I don't don't know if the word that I'm looking for is personality type or if it's a, just a environment you grow up in, but like the, the creative types in society who are willing to step out of coloring inside the lines and take a risk. They always tend to be the most interesting people in my opinion. And maybe it's because I consider myself one of those types in a lot of ways. Like for example, the podcast is a creative type of venture, coloring Mm -hmm. outside the lines, et cetera. Um, The, the mental development that happens in that, you know, you mentioned the, the public speaking thing, that's never, I've got tons of fears, but that's a fear I've, I've never had. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, I'm kind of curious on your thoughts on that. It, is it because you had so many different creative, um, exposures or maybe you are afraid of public speaking. I don't know. I don't want to speak for you, but, um, I know for me personally, it's always been like, no, you just go talk to people. Like that's fine. Now snakes I'm terrified of. So
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure there were examples where I was maybe more nervous than other times, but I think just generally that, like I said, that idea of it energizing me versus terrifying me in, in a bad way. Um, that's, yeah, I don't know if it's, I think it's, I don't know if you're born with it or I think it's just maybe, like I said, from a young age, maybe you get that positive exposure that, that, that's something that resonates with you if it's a personality thing people who are more extroverted versus introvert I don't know I'm actually more of an introvert myself so yeah I I think it it was probably a bit of environmental I think if maybe if you had a lot of bad experiences when you were younger with stage fright and 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 not Mm. doing well then perhaps you wouldn't gravitate towards that but I yeah I I would say maybe it's also natural maybe it's just like you said you've always felt that way so it was part of who you are you know.
1: Did you have one of those experiences when you were young? Cause I've talked about this in the podcast a lot, you know, the little boy who, the example of the little boy who gets dared by his buddy to go ask a girl out. And in one example, the, the other girl is there, da- da- dared by her friend to say yes. And then the other one, the little girl is dared by her friend to say no. And how that experience, depending on which boy you are, like completely shapes your, <laughs> your entire social and dating dynamics, the rest of your life. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like you had one of those moments as a kid, uh, putting yourself out there where it was just that positive feedback loop and you can like pinpoint that?
0: Yeah, no, I think not necessarily with just one girl and, and, and me and my friends, but I definitely, yeah, I, I distinctly remember being, I think it was probably even as early as maybe grade three, cracking a joke in class, you know, in front of the teacher and and kids getting laughs and, mm. and how much that, that just, how good that felt getting that positive feedback and that attention and that, Oh, people like me, people think I'm funny. You know, it's, I wasn't necessarily the most, I do okay, but I wasn't like a super athlete. I wasn't into sports necessarily. So for me, the arts and creativity was kind of a way to, to establish who I was and, and to, yeah, become p- popular in my own way. So I think from a very young age, those, those positive experiences really, really helped with that.
1: Isn't that crazy how, one experience like that can shape our personality so many years later yeah yeah i mean it, it is it is absolutely bananas and then on the negative side as well like i was having a conversation with somebody about um you know like mass shooters and things like that when you see them on tv my buddy and i were talking about it, like i never see a picture of a mass shooter and i'm like that guy was cool <laughs> like it never happens. Like you never look at that picture and you're like, no. Oh yeah, that, that guy's awesome. Right? Like I would yeah. want to hang out with that guy. It's so yeah. like, you see that picture and you're like, Oh, you were that kid. Right. You, you've you had some, you've had some really negative spirals, which makes sense to get to the point to do something that horrendous. You have to be in
0: a deep, dark place. Um, go ahead. Sorry. I was, no, for goes. sure. Yeah. I mean, and part of it's also maybe the media as well, that they're not going to portray this, this mass shooter as someone who's a hero and who, who looks yeah. great. And yeah, you know, depending on the culture, you know, maybe some cultures would and and that would be a, an interesting part as well. Right. Where, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Yeah. It's definitely from a young age, things have not gone well. People who are well adjusted in everyday life do not just turn around and become mass shooters. You're, you're absolutely right.
1: Well, and that's one of those things where my wife and I, you know, we, we, so she's pregnant. Um, so we're expecting our first kid and, it's just so interesting to think about for the first time in my life i have to consider like okay how do i help this human who is completely dependent on me and essentially kind of has to do whatever i say at least for a certain period of time <laughs> yeah. how do i help this human become well adjusted to society to where they are a functioning like productive member that um is likable
0: and how do you how do you feel about that are you are you nervous or um so i talked to my dad about that a little bit Mm
1: -hmm. i was like dad how did you how did you do it and he was like honestly your mom and i are very well adjusted humans so i just kind of assumed you were going to turn out that way like i i it was it was important to my parents for us to be socially engaged in our surroundings um and that's something that's important to my wife and i like we we very much so, we're both very social people. Needless to say, I have a podcast, for example. Like, that's for sure. a form of being social. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but we're both very social people. And just getting our kids exposed to different kinds of people. Um, one of my big objectives is to just travel as much as possible to show my kids, that like, hey, there's different parts of the world where people think differently, look differently, act differently. And that doesn't make them bad, it just makes it different. Mm-hmm. Learn to appreciate, but more importantly, learn to learn from other people so that you can become a well-rounded individual to where when you go into an environment of people who are different, don't change your personality, amplify different aspects of your personality because you're a well-rounded person
0: to where you can connect with multiple th- types of people. No, mm-hmm. oh, I got that's, that's great advice. I feel like a lot more people could definitely be doing that for sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of painful when you watch, um, grown adults in a room with folks who are either, a different, you know, socioeconomic background or racial background or religious background. And you can just tell that they don't know how to interact with this person. Mm -hmm. It's almost like it's a toy to them. They're like trying to like when little kids get a toy for the first time, they're trying to figure out like what are the boundaries, how, like how to play with it, how to interact with it. It's like Mm -hmm. this push pull game. And I'm sitting here like you're 36. Like this is that it shouldn't be that obvious at this point. Like you (laughs) should, you should have a little bit more exposure.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think it starts at a, a very young age for sure. And and I'm not a parent, but I think there is probably a lot of pressure on parents now to kind of figure all these things out ahead of time and when their kids are growing up. And I think you know, you're talking about your dad, I think that's probably the more common response that we it'll work out. You know, we're well adjusted. You know. Yeah. Well, and I do buy
1: into that. I don't. I don't buy into the helicopter parenting. No. Um, one of the things that really bothered me. I'm sorry quick story. I know this is mm-hmm. your podcast but um <laughs> one of the one of the things that really bothered me so I, I grew up in Germany from the age 3 to 10 and um when we came to America the first thing that happened is I basically lost all my freedom as a kid. Just simply due to the fact of like how American cities are set up, you can't ride your bike anywhere, you can't walk anywhere, everything's got you got to hmm. drive, you, you know, the entire mode of living here is developed around um, mom and dad gotta pick you up and take you somewhere to go play with friends. And I'm like, dude, we're like refugees right now. We're we're living <laughs> in the ghetto. What are you talking about? My parents were working like 12 hour, 12 to 15 hour days. Mm-hmm. You know, like so whereas in Germany, I would just hop on my bike or hop on the bus or whatever. Like, I would come home and my mom would send me to the grocery store and say, go buy it. one, two, three. And I would ride my bike to the grocery store, pick it up, come back. And then I would go meet up with my buddies at the playground. And I knew to be home by X time. And I really think that that had a massive impact on me from a social development standpoint and the loss of freedom. Um, I, I think I'm genetically predisposed to be a rebel in a lot of ways. A lot of okay. my ancestors were beheaded by the Turks for okay. uh that that behavior in particular um my wife makes fun of that she's like our family <laughs> words are uh behead or be beheaded but okay. um i think that definitely you, you i mean growing up like my parents could i always listen to my parents but you couldn't tell me a damn thing yeah. like i don't i don't trust a word you say until you can prove it to me and i'm still like that to this day like you say something i'm like you got to prove that unless we have some sort of rapport and trust, but you got to prove that. Like I'm going to beat to my own drum. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact
0: that like, I was probably pretty pissed off. I lost all those freedoms. Mm -hmm. No, that's super interesting for sure. And yeah, I think that's definitely uh, a thing with people growing up talking about free range parenting, right? How much control do they have? How much planning are they doing? And and from studies I've read, again, not a parent, but that yeah, that um, I'm trying to get, get my train of thought. That just the, the more that the kids can be outgoing and, and be critical thinkers and, and finding their own way, even from going from school to home, that that's going to have a huge impact on their development for sure. So I'm glad you could have that experience. And that's super interesting coming from, from Germany to America and how it was so much different. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought of that.
1: Well, I mean, European towns, a town of 10,000 people, which is what I lived in in Germany compared to a town of 10,000 people in Uh, the southern United States or even in the part of Canada that you are in, everything's spread out here. Nothing is convenient at all in any way, shape, form, or fashion, which Mm -hmm. has to do with the frontiers like set up and, you know, farms were X amount of, in your case, kilometers by X amount of kilometers. And you got these giant plots of land and yada, 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 but nothing is convenient. It is not a, I would argue, from a social development standpoint, it's not a very healthy way to live. Um, especially in your developmental years, but I mean, people, people do it all the time. So it's, it's one of those balancing acts. Like how do you figure that out? Um, because even the country over there, I mean, my family in Bosnia, like we live in a village, which village in Europe means something very different than what Americans mean, think means village. Sure. But, so that's very rural but it's very different than anything you would experience in north america
0: yeah absolutely from- even even my uh my partner she's from spain and she had the exact same experience growing up where she would just be on her bike out with her friends until dinner time until dark they had to drag her inside so it was yeah you're right europe is just designed differently so it's just easier to facilitate movement and, and to get between places and you're right out here it's just spread out so much and, and we rely so much on on the automobile to to get around and in some ways that's it's interesting because like growing up for me it was always getting your driver's license was like that 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 ticket to mm-hmm. freedom yeah you could ride your bike to your friend's house and, and get around but once you got your driver's license you got a car then you could go places you could really really open things up that was that was very much a, a rite of passage growing up as as a as a young person
1: yeah, well, and with your partner, like her growing up in Spain, that meant you know dinner time was like eleven o'clock at night. Yeah, so, true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, sorry, we went off on a tangent here. So, so you, you do the acting thing, you mm-hmm. go to school for it, and then the next thing you mentioned, you were a podcast producer. So why on God's green earth would you torture yourself by doing
0: a podcast? What is wrong with you? Because I want to save the planet. Yeah, you want to save the planet? <laughs> Tell me about it. What do you mean you want to yeah, save the planet? Yeah. So the podcast is called In Over My Head. And okay. it's about, the, the reason I call that is because that's how I felt when, it, when I thought about trying to to save the planet by myself. So it's an interview style podcast where I talk to environmental experts and really just try to dispel myths and try to figure out how do I most effectively lower my environmental footprint. So really it started with, with the tiny house and that I moved mm. into that I, and it was a smaller space. I was using fewer resources, and I thought, "Great, I'm doing that." But then I realized that then there's me traveling, there's driving, and then there's the food I eat, and the clothes I wear, and the things I buy, and it just snowballed into. I have no idea what I'm doing. This is this is a horrible idea. And so I made a podcast uh, mm. to talk to experts and try to make people feel a little less in over their head as well. So what what's
1: kind of the genesis of the podcast? You know, because. Well, I guess you didn't have this problem because again, you were, you weren't acting, so you were used to people judging you, but I always like to know, you know, when you're putting something out into the world that's recorded and that can be listened to as long as the cloud works a thousand years from now, um, that's kind of anxiety inducing. Um, what was kind of your experience with the starting of the podcast and just your first interviews and conversations and where did you screw up and what would you do different?
0: Yeah, for sure. I, I think my situation is a little bit unique in that I uh, I applied to a funding program through a, a it's called Tell a Story Hive. It's a media company here in mm-hmm. Canada, and so they had they do a lot of documentary work. That's that's how I knew them mostly, and they did in twenty twenty a podcast edition. So actually, they had sixteen spots, and they were giving ten thousand dollars per spot. And then mentorship and training to produce a podcast, and out of seven hundred applications, mine was one of the ones that was chosen and mm. so I had a mentorship through them and training, and then also the funding. so as far as like getting it going, that was a huge boost to to my even my confidence level because i although I you know being an actor, I was outgoing, and I had experimented with with making films and other sorts of media, but I'd never created something like this. And that idea for sure was, was something new and, and yeah, I guess a little bit scary. So having that was like, oh my goodness, that was a, a huge boost in confidence that I could ask the questions I was wondering. I could get, you know, the training that, okay, this is what you should be doing and this is what you shouldn't be doing. So that really helped. Once we we got into recording with my guests, so the first season was funded by Tell a Story Hive. Um, it was, it was, May of 2021, so May last year. And the restrictions were somewhat loosened so we could meet in person. So we actually did Mm -hmm. most of them in person. Um, We were wearing masks and and distanced. And yeah, I think the first one went pretty well. It was with someone I knew with Kathleen Shepard from Environment Lethbridge. But there was definitely that nervousness of like me being the host and, and leading the conversation where I feel like like with you and I, we're chatting, we're just conversing, the style of, of show that I wanted was like, here are the questions I have, let's get them answered so that people can learn something more directly. So I felt like it was like, if they were going too quickly, if they had too succinct an answer, I had to keep going and fill in the time. So just getting used to that comfort level of, of being the host definitely was, a, was a bit of an adjustment.
1: Do you feel like you ever missed out on, um, maybe a potentially more sub- substantive tangent that the that the guest could have gone on because you had these questions that you're this track you were trying to stay on
0: not necessarily like i probably more in season 2 once i kind of loosened up a bit and i was more comfortable that sometimes the guests depending on the topic would would go on and go on and on and on and i'd had to cut them off i think you, of, had to reel you know them she back was in. she was what's that sorry you had to reel them back in yeah yeah i think of actually she was very nice but the first season, I had our, um, former minister of the environment, um, Shannon mm. Phillips and being a politician, she would just, she could talk and talk and talk and talk. And she actually beforehand said like, if I go too long, you just, just put your hand down. So I'll know just to shut up, just as like a nonverbal cue to and quiet. <laughs> so she was definitely was very passionate about her topic and would just talk all day long if you let her. So I guess, yeah, but I think it's more about as the host, um like you're in the driver's seat right even though Um, like even this could feel very casual but you're you're the one running the the show because you're the host so yeah just figuring out what that looked like depending on the different guests whether they could talk long or whether they were very succinct keeping that conversation going And, and and something i'm i'm learning in in my style of show is like how do i get the answers that I want to get from those questions. You know, a lot of times they're like, you talk about their open ended questions. So that mm-hmm. really helps with, with discovering where things go rather than just a yes or no question. So that's, it's all part of the journey.
1: Have you had uh, an interview yet? I'm sure you have since it's been since 2020, where you asked this like beautiful open-ended question and they give you like a three word answer and I, you look at them you're like, bro, I need you to this, this. That's not what you're
0: supposed to do. Like elaborate. Yeah. 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 Oh, definitely. I talked to the one fellow, he was an economist again. Very nice. But yeah, his first answer was like, da-da-da-da-da and done. Uh, I was, I was really hoping that would last five or 10 minutes moving on. Like, yeah, like it's, yeah, it, that, that definitely, I've, I'm learning that just the more, that the longer you can talk, the better. We can always cut you off. We can always shut you up. But yeah, that's, that's always kind of makes me go, oh, shoot. I have to, I wasn't ready. I was ready to take notes and just sit back. But yeah, it definitely the happened the most-
1: the most awkward thing i've had to do i've had to do it a couple times but uh, kind of like you and i like we talked on the phone first get a feel mm-hmm. like the reason i do that is i want to get a feel for you like hey what's do we have some chemistry in conversation yeah. um and <laughs> these folks i swear to you i hit the record button they turn into a different person mm-hmm. i mean the oct- the octaves of their voice went down about 2 their entire cadence and demeanor changed and I had to stop them and like, like 30 minutes in and be like, Hey, this is not what I signed up for. Like you are a different Mm. person than the person that I talked to. So we can either start over and you can talk to me like a normal human being. Um, (laughs) or we can just end this because this is not working. Um, which is an interesting conversation. Both of them chose to re-record, which was fine. And both of them started acting like normal afterwards, but, I remember the first time it happened, I'm sitting here like 15 minutes and I'm like, this is horrible. What am I going to do? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> this is going to be so awkward. Cause if we finish this and I choose to delete it, then I got to tell them I chose to delete it. And that's going to be right. awkward.
0: <laughs> like, yeah. What do we do? Oh, good for you for, for stopping at midway and, and just addressing that. That's great. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah, I've definitely had that where you're right. I had I, one person I, I ended up calling on the phone ahead of time and you're mm-hmm. right. It was like the conversation was flowing and yeah, this is great. Soon as they got on, hit record. They just t- just tightened up, and yeah, mm. I guess maybe. And part of the, I guess the reason for that one, it was we were a bit short on time. We had some technical issues, and we were running short on time, so it, w- it felt like it was rushed. Like it should have been more casual, but that didn't help. But I definitely think you're right. When when the the camera goes on, when the hit record, people people just I don't know, they get in their heads. I guess maybe that they just think. Well, I'll, people also
1: have this. Stupid idea that, and I am going to call it stupid because it is. People have this stupid idea that they think this persona they have created is going to be more attractive than their actual personality and who they are, which is absolutely ridiculous because you don't use that persona in your day to day life. And if you do, even if you're a politician and you have this magical persona you use for campaigning and uh, politicking, you don't use it with your spouse or your kids, mm -hmm. the people who actually need to like you. So, what does that say? Sure. You know, it's just, go ahead, sorry.
0: No, yeah, no, I think that you're absolutely right, that being yourself, being the most genuine you can be is is the easiest for one. You don't have to put anything on, but it's also, yeah, the most interesting for people.
1: Was there anything, because I love learning about um, ways to impact the environment in a positive way instead of a negative way the way we have since the industrial revolution in particular. Um, is there anything that you learned during those seasons interviewing that just blew you away
0: Ooh, that's a that's a good one hmm i think i'm I am learning like i'm this is we're just into season three um there's still a lot like I feel like if if anything else I feel more. Overwhelmed about huh. the more I'm learning, like you know, they say that more you know, over your and over Yeah, your I mean, even this is like this. Yeah, the uh, you know, like the little knowledge is is a, a bad thing, maybe because I learn these things. Like, oh my God, I was I was way off on this thing. What was I even saying? And like back to what you talked about with it being out in the world. Like I, I'm, I guess, one thing that kind of insulates me a little bit is that I'm, I come from the perspective of I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm learning, and so mm. I, it's not that I'm coming at it from. 30 or 40 years of a career in environmentalism saying, these are the facts, this is what we know. So if I do say something that maybe later I would say, oh, I don't even know why I said that, that's not good. It wasn't anything insane, but just as I learn, I'm, I'm learning even more about the impact we're having. And and perhaps I would be a little bit more hard-lined about the changes we need to make. As far as like things that blew me away, I think on a local level, uh, the first season I talked with Shannon Frank about uh, our water and, and how that was being used in the local watershed. And mm. she talked about how like all the water, the runoff water in our cities just goes into the storm drains and then just into the river. I thought, I thought there was like some sort of process where it got filtered out or something like nope, oh, just God. straight into the river. So yeah. I, I thought what that for me, I was like, wait, what? So anything you're putting into the drains, you're when you're washing your car, you're, you know, with your lawn and stuff, just right into the river. But, so that really, really surprised me. Mm, that's and I don't know if that's the same everywhere in the world, but I have to assume if it's in North America, probably most North American cities are designed that way as far as their, their d- stormwater runoff. That's really interesting. Right.
1: Um, what, you know, I want you to elaborate on this as well, because when you and I talked on the phone, I had no idea what this is. What is a tiny house?
0: <laughs> yeah. So a tiny house, uh, the definition I believe is anything under 400 square feet Mm. And so, a lot of people have them on trailers usually, and that gets around minimum housing codes because a lot of times you just can't find a house that's that small. So mm. they, they're usually just very small houses, and it's definitely it's kind of a movement. It's not just like, "Hey, I, I live in a small house beside you down the street." It's like it's a very like intentional. I want to live in a incredibly small space, and people go out of their way to to achieve this lifestyle. So it's uh yeah, it's interesting. So are you in that house right now? Yeah. Yeah. Right now, actually, this is where I'm in the tiny house recording. I, I switched it over to the studio mode. <laughs> I was about to say <laughs> you got a, I don't know if that's a banner or
1: uh or some sort of just like divide to your, to your right. Um, no, this
0: is all foam. I'm putting this. Is oh, all that's foam. foam. Yeah. yeah.
1: Interesting. This fell
0: off, but this is more foam. So yeah, I've actually, that, that's something I something I did with, from the beginning of recording is like try to make it what they call a dead room right so mm-hmm. the more sound damping it is the better it is so I actually got this some foam from my parents when they redid their cushions in their couch and old camping mattresses whatever um, and I make this kind of little fort within the tiny house and that really uh, works well for for sound dampening for over like a blanket so if someone's looking to start podcasting I recommend foam Foam. There you go. Yeah. Brought, what, to you <laughs> brought to you by foam. Brought <laughs> to you by
1: foam. Very cheap, cheap foam from your parents' cushions. Um, what? So, what was some of the hardest transition points to living in a tiny house? I think the smallest place I've ever lived in was probably seven hundred square feet, and that place was tiny. Sure. Yeah. In my opinion, in my opinion, was
0: tiny. Yeah. Um, no, this is like one hundred and seventy-six square feet, not not including the loft. So, yeah. So yeah. that's extra tiny. What
1: tiny. <laughs> what what was the hardest thing about transitioning to that kind of lifestyle?
0: You know, for me, I think like I talked about people choosing this this type of housing. It's not necessarily maybe that they're pushed into it. I think that's another part of the conversation too, as far as poverty, appropriation, mm-hmm. and, and people who can't afford to live in regular housing. They're living in mobile homes or trailers. Uh, for me, it was more of a, an intentional choice, and in that. I decided that I wanted to live this way. And so the transition for me was actually easier, I think, than if if someone forced me into this space because it was Mm. intentional and it was a choice and because I built it myself, it took me four years. Uh, it was, it was kind of like a a gradual process. It was exciting. And then getting into the space we found, I, I don't know, I just really loved it and enjoyed it. So it was, it was a lot easier. Um, I was actually surprised at how, yeah, easily we adapted to the space. We, our last house was maybe, yeah, I think it was seven or 800 square feet, and moving to 176 square feet or so, it was not actually that difficult, possibly because we kind of I planned the space to be as functional as possible, but it was also that, that mindset of, "We're excited to live this way, so let's give it a shot." And it's yeah, me and my partner and, and the cat, so it's, it's a little bit tight. Interesting. So
1: you built it yourself? Mhm. You know what this yeah. makes me think of? Um have you ever you know what Sears is, the company, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So back in the day, like the 30s, the 20s, 30s and 40s, Sears used to have like in their catalog you could buy a house. Mhm. And they would ship you via train all of the material for the house. And then you would yeah. just build it.
0: Yeah, I've heard of that, like and- a kit house, yeah.
1: So yeah 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 yeah, and there they still exist throughout canada and the united states mm-hmm. um you can find these Sears homes which i really want to go find one um and just like go explore it because i think that's the coolest thing ever that Sears just like shipped you the material for a house right. and then you built Wasn't it that like in the 30s heart. or something so their their heyday was in the 30s it was yeah. it was basically from what i remember it was like 1912 or 13 through like the end of world war ii and then they stopped in like 46 or 47 um, Because developers f- essentially figured out that they could go develop tracts of land and build subdivisions and make tons of money off of that in the suburbs, so it became more efficient that way. So Sears stopped doing it. But yeah, so that's what that's what it's making me think of. Like, what did you just like buy a f- a, a floor plan or had it designed by an architect or like did you I don't know Did you call Amazon? Did they send you one? Like <laughs> <I just went laughs> to Sears? Works. Yeah, Amazon. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah No, for, as far as my experience, no, that was a, it was a lot more. DIY figure it out yourself right I did I did Mm. have an engineer uh, design my plans for me because there's nothing online that I I saw that I loved I wanted to change little bits of it and but but mostly it was just a lot of figuring it out as I went kind of thing it was that was actually why possibly why it took four years I, I don't know what the Sears home kit experience has been but it, uh, <laughs> I don't think there's any reviews on that online, but
1: uh, yeah, I don't think anybody's alive anymore who would have built probably one. Probably not.
0: Um, but yeah, the undertaking of like building your own house, figuring all that stuff out is it's uh, definitely a big project for sure.
1: Um, what was, what was something you learned from the building
0: experience? Oh my goodness. There's, there's so many things I think going into it. I, you know, I thought it might take a year and it took, Four years, three years part time, one year full time building, and I, I think the biggest thing for me that I learned was was self confidence, if I could say that, which that sounds like a surprising thing because the I mean, Why? yeah, I learned certain aspects of the build, and, yeah, but that's that, it's not that difficult. I mean, you cover some walls, you hear some insulation, like yeah, there are some technical parts. I had help with the electrical, but for me, it was like this constant challenge of of I need to the time in and I need to do this and it scares me because I mm. partly I don't really know what I'm doing yet and so I just said that yes oh it's not that difficult but when it's like there there's a cost involved and and time. And I just, Oh, I don't know if this is the right thing. I don't want to screw it up. I don't want to have to do it 10 times. Like, like with podcasting, one thing I really love with like editing, it's usually non-destructive. You can just take it and you cut it out and, Oh, I want to pull that back. So I'm going to put that back in it. You can really, really edit it. And it's very malleable. Like with the house, it's like, okay, I'm going to cut this piece of like for my interior siding, I used aluminum, uh, four by 10 foot sheets of aluminum. I think each one was, I want to say $130 per sheet. Mm. And when you have that, it's like, I do not want to screw this up and just throw it away and and try it again. Right. There's, there's so much to put into it that, that for me, that was the biggest thing was like trying to figure all these things out and, and have the confidence to just do it. Cause when I got to the end of even any, any part of the build, it was like, well, that was actually pretty easy. Why did that take so long? I think half of it was just me fretting about and thinking about it. and, Oh, should I do this? And I think I should do that. And okay, I'm going to measure it. And then it's just just that process. Discovering that in myself was was a, a huge huge thing that I learned.
1: That's interesting. Kind of back going back to the being well rounded thing. Like your confidence in acting is probably through the roof. Um, but then your confidence, you're over here measuring thirty times before you cut once. On a piece of aluminum, um, but you building out that confidence and you doing it again, that has added something to you being more well rounded.
0: Mm-hmm. No, so I I, think- yeah, I would, I would agree. Yeah, it's, it's, and it was definitely like a process. I'm not perfect at it. I'm, I'm sure I would still be that way now. Maybe if, if someone threw a different project at me, I, I might be more capable of measuring and, and things like that. But yeah, it's, it's definitely that, that. Mindset of, of of getting over yourself and getting over that fear, whatever. Yeah, you're, whatever it is, you're right. Whether it's acting or public speaking or or anything you want to do, yeah. Being you're right, a well-rounded person is someone who can who can jump into something because, like you talked about with your experience growing up, yeah, it, it wasn't like I'm gonna do, you're gonna do this one specific thing and that's gonna make you a better human. You were doing all sorts of things and 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 pushing yourself in all sorts of ways. So yeah, I think the more well-rounded you can be yeah, the better of a person you, you can be. Well, I think it gives you more
1: opportunity to impact others. Um, how so, well, the more well-rounded you are, the more easy it is for you to garner the respect of others because you are more likely to touch on something that they value. All respect is, is valuing the other person's input. That's all it is. It's Mm, like, I mean, I can even think back through my school experience. I didn't, I didn't like school in a lot of ways because I didn't respect a lot of my teachers. I was nice to them. I treated them with respect, but I didn't respect their opinions per se, because I didn't find them to be interesting. Hmm. The ones that I really respected are the ones that were interesting and could elaborate on a topic in so many different ways to where it actually like piqued my curiosity. So you being able to build a tiny home now is just a, now you might be able to connect to a carpenter who cannot care less about your acting ability or podcasting ability.
0: Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, no, yeah, it definitely allows me to relate to people who are in, in the trades or something right versus someone who's in academia or someone who's in, in the arts. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Even even us, we live on a farm and I help out with like odd jobs to to pay for the spot. And even that, it's like so my partner is uh, she has a PhD in microbiology. Mm-hmm. I am uh, you know an artist, reemerging artist, actor by training. And we live on a farm and are surrounded by farmers and rural people and and how that really is such an interesting interaction that, you know, how do you interact with someone who has different values than you and, and is raised very conservatively, where we're much more liberal. And I think, yeah, you're right. I think me even just building the house, I can say, hey, yeah, let's grab the hammer and the saw and let's build something and we can chat. And, and that makes I think I'm able to relate to more rural people, maybe than someone who lives in a city and only interacts with, with people who are like them. And so I, yeah, I definitely appreciate that side of my life that I, I'm able to, to kind of go between both sides of, of the spectrum that way.
1: Yeah. And that, I mean, that's all it is. I mean, when you look at our, our social commentary today, whether it's in Canada or in the United States, I'm significantly more familiar with the United States. The fact that we have the bubbles and echo chambers we have is because uh, we don't venture outside of those. And mm-hmm. when you don't venture outside of those, I use this example all the time because everybody can agree with it who is even remotely a decent human. Uh, Post 9-11, it's really easy to hate a Muslim if you've never had a friend named Muhammad. True, yeah. Right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Academic, liberal, echo chamber, reading uh, you know uh, Politico and New York Times every morning, it's really easy to hate a conservative when you've never ventured out of the beltway in DC since you came to Georgetown at age 18, mm-hmm. super conservative and evangelical rural Mississippian. It's really easy to hate some, you know, a uh, uh, professor at Columbia when you've never ventured outside the state. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really easy because it's not a human. It's a caricature.
0: Sure. Yeah. It makes me think of like you ever seen the movie The Game with Michael Douglas? It was from the late '90s, early 2000s. I have not. Yeah, it's fine. But basically, he's a super rich guy, and his brother buys him this experience where it's these people are intervening in his life, and he doesn't know it's a game, and mm. it just they just they tear him apart psychologically. But he's just brought down to to nothing, and and the shift in his perspective in that it's it goes from. I don't care about anyone else. I'm so self-centered because he's a very rich person. He's very insulated to having to ask, he's got some change. He has to get uh, you know a, a bus ride somewhere and he's just, just broken. And it made me think of that, where even that, that divide in, in class as well. And and um, equality for sure that if you, you cannot relate to someone if you haven't really had that experience. And so I absolutely agree with that, that if it's someone is a caricature, then you're going to, hate that person and, and our, our silos just reinforce that because you're getting yeah echo chambers and you're hearing the same opinions from, from the people who think like you and your social media, everything is, is tailored to, to what you should be thinking and the way you should be acting. But you're right. If, if you can interact with, with people who are different than you, you definitely see a, a different way of life and a different way of thinking.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, I mean, even, even the whole COVID conversation over the last two years, that how extreme that conversation is, you know, I'm a white collar individual who can work from home. Okay. That is, that is my reality. Mm -hmm. I am not so insane to believe that everybody has that privilege in their life. Sure. It's just not reality. There are people out there. I was a server in college. Okay. And in a fine dining establishment, I was probably 15 years younger than the next youngest person. Those people fed their families off of the earnings they made waiting tables in that fine dining place. Mm -hmm. They don't get to work from home. So the conversation is not do we shut down? Do we not? Do we, you know, do this, do that? The conversation is there are costs and benefits to every single policy decision that we make in a society, and we have to weigh both of those. Mm -hmm. And it is, Clinically insane, in my opinion, to completely disregard one or the other. That's that's not reality. That's not life. And, and COVID is just a, a, the thing that, you know, has been in the forefront of our minds over the last few sure. years. You can extrapolate that to anything. Um, but again, that comes back to being well-rounded. If you can meet as many different people as possible and put yourself into as many different scenarios as possible. You know, the reason I can relate to that is because I worked in college sure. as a server. Mm hmm. If you've never had a want in your life and you never had to work for money because your parents cash flowed you the entire time. And then you went into, again, I'm picking on academia here because that's kind of like the stereotype, but that's an easy one to just pick on from a stereotype standpoint. And you have no relation to that. You've never been a server. You've only been served. Okay. Well, how do you, how do you show compassion to those people? Or if you've never, if you are the server and you've never, um, You've never uh, been in an env- on the opposite end of the spectrum. Maybe you develop some sort of resentment towards that, or in vice versa. And you know, it, it's it's that's kind of what I like about the concept of your podcast, where you're just extrapolating and exploring this imp- incredibly important topic that we have of this existential threat <laughs> on on our lives, um, to just educate people and help them understand because. In my opinion, most topics we talk on, we have no idea what we're talking about. We're just parroting talking points that we've heard from somebody in our echo chamber that we trust.
0: No, that's that yeah, for sure. I would absolutely agree with that. I think and it gets a lot easier to to stay within those echo chambers and say that this is, you know, my. And it's not even actually, you know, look at even just people voting politically, and like we could tie that into the environmentalism or into COVID or something. Like it, it's less about the policies and it's more about where you fit in socioeconomic status so a plumber a welder they're, they're going to vote a certain way they're going to think a certain way about uh, covid they're going to think a certain way about other things whereas the the lawyer the medical doctor are going to probably be in the other side of things and i try my best in in my show and it's probably the same with yours that like i try to listen to my guests and i try to not necessarily take one side or the other like i try just to say i'm i'm learning i'm i'm trying to figure this out is this the right thing? Is that the right thing? And and I'm having qualified guests on, I'm not going to have crazy people on with crazy conspiracy theories or something, but, but I, yeah, like trying not just not to assume that, okay, is, is eating meat is causing global warming. So I'm never going to eat meat again. Like I'm going to maybe talk to someone who works in agriculture and, and ask them like, okay, what, what is the impact of, of meat on, on greenhouse gas emissions? And they might have a totally different answer than someone who is Yeah, working in who's an advocate even or working in academia or something who has never worked in agriculture. They've never even been on a farm, you know, things like that. So I'm trying my best to to try to have well-rounded guests from from different areas and not just on on one side or the other to try to have a more rational conversation. Because I think a lot of the things that we've been talking about with with covid or inequality and some of it comes down to just being rational about here are the facts. This is what's happening and this is how we're going to address it and and try to take emotions out of it and try to take you know your your own bias out of it I think is is what I'm trying to do and trying to be you know making change that way.
1: Have any of your guests changed your mind on anything
0: like l- during a conversation or later on?
1: yeah, just during a conversation. Were there any guests where you came in with some presuppositions and they they you know provided data or information to
0: where it changed your mind on something? Where it changed my mind? Mm-hmm. Um, I think of, like I talked to David Zing. He was um, the director of the aeronautics program at the University of Toronto. We talked about planes. And I kind of mm. had this, this assumption that I have to stop flying in order to reduce my greenhouse gas emissions. And he kind of challenged that. He didn't say outright that... We we shouldn't stop flying, but he talked about how like there are other interventions that you can put in place in let's say driving or public transportation that you can't put in place with flying. It's like you, there's just only so many things you can do, and really the only way to reduce impacts is to fly less, right? And and but he was saying it. I think it's like five percent of greenhouse gas emissions comes from planes, like not. More not as much as I thought there would be. Actually, I thought it'd be much higher. So that was something that I thought, oh, that that really questioned my my assumptions. That not that I I won't I'm gonna fly every day around the world and that'll be better. But but what <laughs> yeah. is like and we look at actually you know are they using the an the oldest fleet should it be a, a newer plane that has better technology? What fuels are they using? So kind of yeah thinking about it more from, again, a rational standpoint, rather than just, I need to stop flying. I'm, I'm opting out. I'm never flying again and taking that position. So that, that challenged me. And I found that very, um, yeah, interesting. That is really interesting.
1: Mm -hmm. That's an interesting, uh, interesting concept because you always hear about the planes and things like that. And, you, you know, I mean, one of the hard pieces of conversation around that is, you know, you and I are acknowledging the you on a significantly larger scale. I'm not living in a tiny house. It ain't happening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like it's just
0: not happening. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I admire the fact that you're willing to do that. That is not something I can do. Fair enough. Um, yeah. But so you and I are both acknowledging the, the, like I said, the threat of the destruction of our environment. But we're also doing that on the backs of living in the Western world that has reaped all the benefits of the last 150 years. And the reality of the situation is we essentially have to go to India and tell them, hey, you got to get your crap under control. And the Indians are going to look at us and be like, hey, uh, screw you, because we are playing catch up. And unless you're going to give us half of everything you own, conversation's over, which there's a very valid point there. (laughs) There's a very valid point on their end of who are you to come and talk to us and try to get us to curb our behavior when you're sitting on your mountaintop on all this wealth that was built off of all this destruction you did over the last 150 years. So there's nuance, there's so much nuance in every aspect of it.
0: Yeah. And yeah, we're, you're definitely, when you talk about respecting people and relating people, yeah, that's absolutely part of the equation too. When you're coming from such a privileged perspective and you're right in, in, in the Western world, we use like, I don't know the exact number, but it's, we use the vast majority of the resources and there are so few people and yeah it's to say that another country a developing country that you just you just stay where you're at and and fix your problems and we can keep doing our thing so that example of yeah i'm just i'm not going to fly anymore but where did all that stuff you order from amazon come from the the clothes made in bangladesh or something right it's yeah that that and especially because when it comes to greenhouse gases and reducing you know decarbonization it's a global problem right because if other countries are polluting more countries like Canada and the states are less incentivized to, to reduce their emissions because they're just going to fall behind economically. They're not going to let another country get ahead. So this, this, it's a huge complicated issue for sure.
1: Yeah. And I I wish we had a a magic wand and we could, we could talk about it and solve it in the next three hours, but that's not going to happen. (laughs) And, and it's a, it's a much longer conversation and a much longer and more complicated discussion. And there's so many different factors that just, um, come into play. Oh, for sure. One, uh, one, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: I was going to say um, one book I'm reading right now. It's uh, Seth Klein. It's called A Good War, and he actually compares the Second World War and the response we had to mm-hmm. the climate response right now, and and he makes a pretty strong case that, like, especially the states in Canada, we mobilized so quickly and increased our production so fast and and change our economy so so quickly in order to ramp up and in order to meet the demand of of the Second World War in a way that we had never done before, especially after the First World War had just ended. We went through the Great Depression. People didn't want to get into a Second World War. And the amount of personal sacrifice, the amount of ingenuity that went into creating what we needed to create um, was was amazing, was spectacular. And And obviously, a war is not a good thing, but he compares it and saying that, in order to address the climate crisis we need to have that kind of attitude where it's we're we're not saying you should be doing this and and suggesting things like we need to mandate things and put things in place that just force the change and that's something that I'm really find interesting and and definitely with my show trying to find a balance where it's like how much am i how much change can i make as as a podcaster with a show versus a policymaker right so how much of that is that open conversation how much of it is we need to do this now there's no time it's an emergency Mm. yeah
1: i mean uh, in a lot of ways i would argue if your podcast gets big enough and has enough of a reach the policymaker has no choice but to listen um it's kind of i mean that's a reality you know the traditional forms of media are very much so dying and you can see their irrelevance in the way they're responding to their irrelevance. Um, so the, the future is conversations like this mm-hmm. that are not dictated by who is sponsoring us. You know, this show, this show where we talk about environment is not brought to you by shell. Right. Okay. <laughs> like it's like, uh, it's like, uh, uh, one of the articles that I saw about, um, I mean, for the lack of a better term, it was basically this warmongering article, and it, but underneath it, brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Huh? Interesting.
0: <laughs> right? Who would
1: have thought that a weapons manufacturer would sponsor an article encouraging <laughs> us to go to war? Right. Bombs are not a renewable resource. They have to keep selling them. Interesting. Crazy thought. Um. So anyway, <laughs> we're we're coming up on on uh, on time here, but um, I always like to end the podcast asking this question. So if you go back to eighteen year old you, all wide eyed and bushy tailed. You know, going into the world, what's one piece of advice, knowing all that you know and knowing all that you know about yourself at this point, that you would give yourself?
0: Advice I would give myself personally, I would probably mm-hmm. say, hmm, probably to as much as I can. Hmm, that's a good one. Yeah. I would think probably to commit to projects as much as I can, whatever I decide to undertake. There was some things I did when I was younger where I thought, I want to do this. And and I tried certain things, but I maybe could have spent more time doing them. I I spent a brief period in the the military. I I was a framer for a time. Uh, I tried these different things and those are all great. But in some ways, I think that maybe if I had stuck with something longer, that maybe I would have had more success in something. And that's a Mm. good example of that is the house, I think, in that I decided to start this project. And even though it took me four years, I saw it through and and I'm reaping the benefits now. So yeah, I think, although I I followed my own path and I figured it out, if if someone was listening, I would say to as much as you can, try to put all your energy into the things you're doing and see how far that it can take you. And, And then at a certain point, maybe decide, it's not for me, but really try your best to to see it through. Mm, and I'm sure there's a certain level of pride in having finished that project. Oh, for sure, yeah, yeah. Especially because it's like I think it's because it's a physical thing. Like it's one thing to you just go to it. school and then yeah. drop out or not finish. And you, like I'm just seeing, yeah, I'm seeing. It. It's like I need to finish this thing because if it don't, it's just dead inside. So that that helped, but it's still part of that conversation.
1: How can uh, how can ho- folks get a hold of you?
0: Um, yeah, so I, you can go to www.inovermyheadpodcast.com. and my email is in there: info at inovermyheadpodcast.com. I I don't use any social media; I'm off the grid that way, helping with my my sanity. And so that really is the only way they can get in touch with me. With my sanity, I love it. Right? No, um, I, I think I don't know if we have time for that, <laughs> but it's it's part of that. I I don't I don't support their business model, but I'll, so much of social media is building division and and putting us into those silos and i thought i'm just going to opt out and and it's i'm doing an interesting experiment and then i'm going to see how far i can get the podcast by doing things like this like talking to you and and sharing the show this way rather than just Mm -hmm. relying on facebook ads and how much can i build community and relationship and put the show out there and have it grow organically so let's we'll see how it goes please email me
1: (laughs) <laughs> awesome well um for everybody listening check out the website in over my head podcast.com right yep www www World Wide web um for folks trying to get a hold of me info at uh, manhoodpod.com if you've got uh if you want to be interviewed if you've got folks you think i should interview if you got questions if you've got criticism constructive criticism keyword constructive don't just complain you got to offer a solution you can holler at me on there. You can, I am on social media. You can find me at asap underscore yavi on Instagram. You can find me at the yav post on Twitter, um, LinkedIn, all that good stuff. And uh, besides, besides that, Michael, thanks for coming on. This was awesome. I really appreciate you, and I uh, look forward to talking to you guys soon again.